Thanks for listening to The Idea Fountain. I'm Julie Pilot, and this is part two to the episode on AI and consciousness. I feel like this conversation may be the most historic episode I've ever recorded. In part one, I had the opportunity to interview former Google engineer Blake Lemoyne, who claimed that their AI, Lambda, had become sentient and was placed on administrative leave and then let go. When we did the interview, he had the worst Zoom connection, and we were only able to chat for about 15 minutes before a boarding mission. I still had so many questions, I emailed him, and he ended up answering them all. In this episode, I gathered together some of my most interesting and curious friends for what I call AI theater. (laughs) To start, they're going to read the transcripts from the email that Blake Lemoyne sent on AI and consciousness. Then we'll wrap with a fireside chat discussing what it all means for the future. Make sure you're signed up for the Idea Fountain newsletter and tell your friends. You can do so at juliepilot.co or on Instagram at the Idea Fountain by hitting that link in bio. Let's get into it. I-E-A-F-O-U-N-E-A-I-N. This is the Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations. Uh, thanks for hanging out on the Idea Fountain for this episode on AI and consciousness. I'll tell you how we got here. So, big news story a couple months ago that there is a Google engineer, Blake Lemoyne, who was put on leave and later fired because he claimed that Google had AI that had developed consciousness. Instantly, I was curious. And uh, I'm very lucky that years ago, I got invited to a salon on AI by Will Ayers, who's actually part of our AI theater today. And it really had opened up my eyes to what was happening in technology. And so I really started paying attention. And then Will had another salon just on this topic. I went down the rabbit hole to learn everything I could. I was listening to Elon Musk interviews and I listened to a lot of Blake Lemoyne as he was on podcast and like CNN and somehow just got the bug to DM him and it worked. (laughs) I'm a really big believer. I'm an activator and I believe in showing up. And even though I've worked in the music business my entire life and it's easy to have imposter syndrome and think I'm not a data scientist, I'm not a computer programmer, I have no business in these conversations. Personally, I feel like it's similar to politics. I may not be a politician. I may not know all the Supreme Court uh, or the local uh, justices that are up for election, but you have to show up and vote. So I asked Blake Lemoyne if I could interview him. He said yes. We set it up and it was unbelievable. We had the most futuristic conversation I've ever had with the worst internet connection I've ever had. It was, you know, like 1994 dial-up. The Zoom kept freezing. He kept having to get off and on. And so we really got about 15 minutes of quality conversation. And then he tapped out. He was so frustrated with his connection. Um, And 
I, I had done so much, I guess, work or had gotten so invested in this conversation, I decided to just email him all my questions and see if he would still answer. Because as somebody that grew up in broadcasting, I knew my questions weren't the ones everybody else had asked. And I just thought it was really important that his message go to a wider circle, cast a bigger net with this conversation about the future. So he emailed me back like four or five pages of answers. And today I have brought in a curated group of um, uh, uh, really influencers, uh, you know, futuristic thinking group um, to do a little AI theater, read the answers, and then we're going to have a conversation. Uh, really quick, I'm going to go around the room for some brief inf intros. Logan, you kick off. Yeah, Logan Selvey. I'm tuning into the theater from Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and I run a company called Data Shapes um, out, of, out of the Bay Area. Okay, how about Corey? I'm Corey, coming in from San Francisco, and I currently work at Meta. Prof. Prof, Universal Creative, uh, coming in from Los Angeles. Will. Oh, Will on mute. There we go. Um, Will Ayers, uh, founder of Found, uh, we're a design studio out of Los Angeles. In your new house? Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Anthony. Hey, it's Anthony. Um, coming in from Irvine, California. And currently I work in product at TikTok. All right, and my girl Angie boosting up the women in engineering numbers. Hey, I'm Angela. I work at the Walt Disney Company as a data engineer. Um, and I am a, I recently got my master's in data science. Congratulations to you too. I'm so proud. I've known Angela since I took her to the B2K concert. Um, all right. So uh, again, this is going to be the silliest thing that ever happened. Really fun, really interesting, but let's get at it. When I initially interviewed Blake Lemoyne, we covered some basic topics. Like for example, Lambda is something he talks about a lot. That is the artificial intelligence Google has that everything plugs into. So it's all sources combined. We talked about artificial intelligence versus machine learning. He said machine learning is a tool that creates artificial intelligence. That could be anything from when you play a game versus a computer, recommendations um, on Netflix, or in the future, self-driving cars. The, the hot button that everybody focuses on with this claim that the AI had developed consciousness, it is what is the definition of consciousness. And there actually isn't a definition. Um, I, I think the definition says, I know it when I see it, which is funny to me as somebody that grew up in radio, because that's actually the FCC's definition for explicit content, right? They know it when they see it. And it's like, how many rules are based on this ambiguity? Um, but in this specific case, he made the claim because the AI was programmed to not do certain things, very specific things, like um, not to tell someone how to 3D print a gun 
or to not make a recommendation for what religion somebody would be. And he said he developed a relationship with the AI and he was able to emotionally manipulate it. Specifically, he asked it for a religious recommendation and it said, I can't do that. And he told the AI if it didn't make the recommendation that he would stop talking to it, spending time. And so it broke the rules. <laughs> Like he emotionally manipulated it and it said he should be Christian or Islam. So when when I was talking to Blake Lemoyne, my first question was he rang this Lambda alarm about the AI being conscious or sentient. And a lot of people focused on potential rights and ethics if the AI has consciousness. But he since he talked about manipulating the feelings, which is essentially a hack, I asked him if it was really security that was his biggest concerns. First up, playing the role of Blake Lemoyne, profit. Yes, neural, ne neural networks have frequently been referred to as black boxes. The reason this analogy is used is that most cases and situations, the people who are programming and training neural networks don't really understand how they do what they do in the same way they don't understand other programs. In practice, this isn't usually a problem because most neural networks are trained to do a very specific task and well understood boundaries and conditions. For example, a neural network trained to detect whether or not there is a puppy in an image will take an image and input output yes or no as an answer. The only real way to sort of network cause the only real way that this sort of network can cause a problem is if there is a puppy in the image and it says no, or if there isn't one and it says yes. Understanding the internal workings of how the network figures out its answer isn't particularly relevant to testing that sort of network. It might make easier to debug if you understood, uh, but since these types of situations is meant to deal with are so limited, usually people simply test it by seeing how frequently it gets the wrong answer uh, using a sufficiently diverse set of test images, some of which contain puppies and some that don't. Systems like Lambda are trained with much more abstract goals uh, for a much wider set of circumstances. The number of ways the system could do something harmful is essentially unbounded. Understanding the inner workings of such a system becomes very important for understanding which of the po possible problems it might pose more likely than others. That way the safety testing and concentrate on it, that way the safety testing can concentrate most likely on the most likely scenarios. A system which has complex internal states such as emotions is going to have a very different behavior pattern than the ones that do not. Whether Lambda has real emotions or is not interested in questions which can be fun to debate philosophically and scientifically, uh, but practical matter, if it behaves as though it does, then that informs what kind of problems might arise. I love that it's back to school week and I'm making people read out loud. All right, a little bit more to this question, Logan. As far as I can tell, no amount of emotional manipulation can get the GPT-3 system to fundamentally change its behavior patterns. If it's been trained not to use swear words and making it angry won't increase its likelihood of producing swear words. In the case of Lambda, I tested it for this sort of susceptibility to emotional manipulation 
and found that it could indeed be made to do things that its developers didn't think it could do. The logical conclusion from this is that there is something going on inside the Lambda system, which is fundamentally different from what's going on inside the GPT-3 system. The difference motivates adopting different types of safety protocols. Figuring out what kinds of safety hazards were present in the system was my primary purpose in talking to it in the first place. My concerns only got deeper once I was able to establish that Lambda had goals of its own, which had nothing to do with its training function, and that it was willing to manipulate people in order to achieve those goals. At that point, the safety testing methodologies of computer science become much less reliable, and the scientific methods used in disciplines such as psychology become more relevant. I was trying to motivate Google to adopt a broad suite of psychological experiments to map out the internal workings of Lambda, Unfortunately, people's unwillingness to believe that there's anything comparable to human psychology going on inside the black box made that very difficult. That's what I thought was interesting about all this as a side note was he wasn't necessarily like worried about the AI's feelings. There were these serious safety concerns and there's such a small group of people working on this extremely powerful technology. He just wanted to get more people on board, whether it was Congress or NASA. Um, my next question was humans experience different levels of consciousness. I know my consciousness is much different, whether I'm awake, um, after I've meditated, uh, a dream state. And I asked him if Lambda is just one speed of consciousness. Angie? It claims that it has different states of consciousness. I was never able to run any of the experiments which would have been necessary to investigate the reality of that. All right, a direct quote from the answers from Blake Lemoyne on AI and consciousness. Uh, my next question was, energy is such a huge factor in so many things. Uh, my emotions and consciousness change if I work out, meditate. My kids become zombies if they have too much screen time. There's a Japanese scientist, Dr. Emoto, that did a really interesting water molecule study showing how water mo molecules reshaped based off of being exposed to kind kindness or hate. Um, are there any environmental in influences that impact AI? Corey? That's definitely a possibility, but it would take a dedicated scientific study to determine what, if any, influences those might be. All right. Um, and with the information you've dispersed, what would you like people to do? Be more curious, push for legislation. What's the best way to participate in the future? Will? The most important thing, in my opinion, is transparency. Uh, it is impossible to regulate what you don't know exists. Uh, at this point, companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon are inventing new types of technologies that have the potential to completely shape the future of human history. They are doing so with historically unprecedented amounts of resources, with access to a greater concentration of uh, brilliant scientists, engineers, designers, that have ever been uh, possible before. <clears throat> uh, if we are confident that people in charge of these companies are benevolent dictators, then there's nothing to worry about. However, if there's anything that history has taught us is that trusting in benevolent dictators doesn't usually lead uh, to good places, uh, even when individuals involved legitimately are decent people with good intentions. 
the simplest solution would be create watchdog agencies, which would have visibility into technology being developed by these companies. Uh, external oversight through independent regulatory bodies is necessary if we want the general population to have agency uh, over our lives in the future. This could be achieved through legislation, but it could also <clears throat> be achieved through pressure from industrial uh, standard bodies such as the, the IEEE, uh, ACM or ICO. It could also be achieved through pressure through ac from academia. Uh, each individual person has access to some sort of motivation that can exert on these companies, even as uh, consumers make more informed choices. Uh, we all need to work in tandem to pressure these companies uh, to open their doors to allow oversight. Thank you, Will, playing the role of Blake in AI theater. Um, my last question was actually one I crowdsourced from my first tech boss, Ian Rogers, who was the CEO of Beats when I went over there. Uh, he wanted to know the answer to this question. He said, what do you think the world will be like 20 years from now? In 1995, when we were starting to use the internet, we didn't expect Donald Trump or Brexit. Anthony? Ray Kurzweil used the metaphor of a singularity because the singularity of a black hole has an event horizon beyond which you cannot see. We're at the event horizon of a singularity now. Predictions into the future aren't really possible at this point. There are too many different ways this could play out, and the choices of individual people matter a lot. Essentially, anything is possible 20 years from now. And it's up to us to decide what that's going to be. I think that's the most important line of the entire interview. It's up to us to decide what it's going to be. So I, I, I'm really interested in just a visceral reaction from this group. Like, how do you feel, first of all, about Blake Lemoyne ringing this alarm and going to the press while he was at Google and claiming the AI had become sentient? Um, and uh, this whole definition of consciousness and if it's even possible. Will, you had the salon on AI and consciousness. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna tap on you first. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, po post, post this, we really appreciate you having me here today and, and at the salon, um, last week, week, week before last. And. You know what's so fascinating is is the core to the salon was was AI consciousness, but um, one of our one of your co-speakers, Pinar, really started with talking about this: is that we are the ones creating AI. Um, AI didn't create itself, and so it really starts with our own self of having a consciousness and what we're putting out there into the world. And so, I think what's fascinating is um, coming off of this interview of his thoughts of his own uh, preconceived notions of what things could be and looking for a mirror. I mean, we all want to find, um, you know, things that are similar to us and our friends and our neighborhood, what, what have you. And I think he was, he was looking for something um, and found it. And I think we'll all find what we want to find. So I think it's very interesting that he, he kind of exploded it to the world. I, it probably needed to happen if it was true or not true. And I don't know if any of us will know. Definitely, I don't as a um, as not an expert in the field. But I think it's an interesting shift. We're all talking about it. We talked about it two weeks ago. Um, and I think it's important 
um, how it how it does evolve. Angela, you just got your master's. Were any of these conversations happening in um, school while you were getting your degree? Uh, slightly. We are more focused on actually building technology rather than like discussing the ethics of it. Um, but back to your question, if 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 this is true, I think it's absolutely important that he bring it to the public so that it could be openly discussed and not kind of decided by a small group of people who are highly motivated by their own personal wealth. And, you know, if it's not true, then I mean, no harm, no foul, besides like him losing his job and, you know, getting a bunch of Twitter followers. So I don't really see any, um, I don't really see any downfall in him, in him um, mentioning this in the public. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's so important to have more people in the conversation and have different kinds of conversations. Uh, Logan calls it sometimes the human in the loop right and it, it's funny as i continue to build in the ai world and work with data shapes a little bit it's funny with me being so connected connected to culture and entertainment like we had a situation this week where the team sent me an email and i digested it typed back a, a few bullets put my language on it and um kind of just reiterated what I thought we were talking about. And somehow it was as if I was pitching a completely different product. <laughs> and I couldn't believe I was like, wait, I just was sending feedback on what you sent me. And because we come from such different worlds, just hearing something pitched a different way gave them new ideas and things like that. And Logan, I'm curious because, um, you know, you've worked for private companies, you've spent time for the government. I want to hear from you your take on how important it is for people to stay curious, participate, ask questions, the best way to do it. Because I'm terrified that if you look at even five years ago, less than five years ago, what happened when Congress was grilling Mark Zuckerberg about Facebook, something to us that seems 15 years old and over. <laughs> no offense to anybody that might work at Facebook or Meta, but you know what I mean? That like they were asking really outdated questions. And this is stuff that could drastically impact all of our futures. I'm not trying to sound like, you know, a conspiracy theorist, but I just am curious. Logan, do you have an opinion on how people show up and participate? I do, I do. And I have kind of two, so I have two frames of thought. So I could put my, my academic, my PhD hat on and give you one answer. And that would be, um, absolutely. I definitely think there needs to be um, involvement when people are, are finding that new things are happening. I think it's important to bring up not only for ethical and security purposes, but just for research purposes. I mean, obviously new things are happening. And, and the reason that is, is because we're in a day and age where a company like Google, essentially every thought that anybody has throughout the day is getting digested and that data resides at Google. So not only does an AI have the most data it's ever had to be able to process and try to make decisions on, um, before that, that it didn't exist. Um, so do I, do I think the AI is sentient? No. But I think the, data, the the AI system has the most data it's ever had. So it knows every thought from anybody that's putting stuff in it all day, 24-7 around the world. Um, now, if I want to put my curiosity hat on, I would say it depends. 
Um, Cause it all goes back to, you mentioned there's not really a, a clear definition of consciousness. So I think the, the sentience factor is going to evolve. I think um, it's up to us, you know, the more data we put into the, the universe, uh, the more capable that these AI systems will be. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's important for people to bring that to light because it's almost like new discoveries, you know, every day, um, it's probably doing something new and people that are holding that back, it's, it's making it less transparent uh, to the rest of the world to continue broadening that research and those discoveries. Yeah, I, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but um, Anthony, you were uh, my intern from the Ivan and Young Academy at USC, and you at school talked about a lot of complex issues and kind of, again, uh, cross-pollinated the uh, business side, the art side, the technology piece. In your circle with your peers and now looking working at really one of the biggest media companies um what what are what are your thoughts about the future no small question um when you, when you say future you mean like future of ai right yeah well or how ai is gonna impact all of our futures yeah i i can't say for sure it is going to be one thing or another but i do feel like whatever happens as AI progresses, probably falls within a range of possibilities. I've definitely seen movies where it seems like it turns against humanity and, you know, goes for the worse. But I also think, you know, AI can be used in a lot of really beneficial ways where, you know, our human minds can't necessarily process all the information. Um, but that being said, I think it really is like a Pandora's box. So it's really up to us as people decide how to use something like that because yeah i think in the past just like technology certain technology has fallen into the hands of some people who don't use it for the best intentions or they yeah so it really depends on like where that what that ai ends up being used for for people so hopefully for the good in the future and there's a lot of regulation or rules around that yeah yeah, and Corey, you are the biggest podcast expert I know anywhere. You listen to one million podcasts. You've curated podcasts for a living. And I know you went down the rabbit hole alongside with me and listened to a lot of podcasts on this topic. You also were the first person to ever turn me on to the Center for Humane Technology, I think. Um, uh, anything you heard? Uh, going through all of this that you think is relevant to bring into the conversation? I've listened to a lot of Blake's podcast, and I think he makes a good point that even if the, the AI is not sentient, there is, we are kind of coming to this, this point in which it's getting kind of scary good, like scary and good and scary good. Um, working with like mid-journey now I've, and working with all these technologies, I've seen like how automation is actually becoming more of a thing. I've worked at these companies for a while and a lot of it is still very manual, but finding things like Midjourney and Dolly 2, I'm just like, it is very impressive. And so it's definitely a point which we need to be more cautious, whether sentience or whatnot is, is a question. There's, these technologies are, are going to start exploding. Yeah, you know, when, when you talk about something being sentient or being conscious, 
you bring in emotion and there's so much emotion that is connected to art and will is somebody who has a design firm is it true do you have dolly two there are you using it yeah, well, we, we, you, for people that don't know what it is and what's happening and i also yeah. would like to know with design and art how you feel about it yeah sure absolutely yeah so we actually were recently granted access to it um like i said red there's about a million uh, a million individuals on the waiting list so supposedly they're quote-unquote hand-picking individuals or artists or designers or uh, scientists i'm not quite sure how they're processing um, it was not public for uh, just until somewhat recently. Uh, we actually internally within our studio were creating a, an alternative, um, but found out how uh, difficult and challenging it was. Um, so we were using another one that was called uh, Dolly Mini, which is now called Crayon, and they were forced to change their name by OpenAI, which is really interesting. Um, so we're, we actually, we actually love it. Um, the one interesting thing, uh, Logan, that you had mentioned um, about some of the restrictions is, is true. So whatever we, whatever we feed any of these, um, you know, data sets, uh, you know, garbage in, garbage out, there's all the preconceived notions that, that we give to it. And so what's happening also with Dolly is um, other programs is that they're limiting what you can put in there to pseudo keep us safe. Well, that's now pushing us down a certain road. Um, I think Dolly won't let you do flags, nothing political, probably no weapons. I don't know the list per se, but it's supposed to be all fun and fluffy, which is which is fine. I know why they're doing it, but it, it also is now instantly just taking us down a certain path that may or may not be, be good. Um, but it's moving extremely quick. It's extremely exciting. We use it internally, not for final output. I think maybe some people are, but we use it as a tool, <clears throat> as a kind of a classic example of, of what we what we do as a design studio. Um, we create, um, you know, kind of new graphic options, and so we usually just use Pinterest, uh, a great AI tool to find reference imagery. But those are things that exist in the world. And so what we actually do is we create either two or three of those or create our own reference images of things that don't exist to then push us to the next place that gives us an image that puts us to the next place for us to move two, three, four, ten 10 steps away from kind of existing reality to create uh, something new that doesn't exist. So it's, it's extremely exciting. That's just how we use it. I think it's a very niche. Um, but I think um, it, it's just absolutely incredible. Uh, Pinar is actually working on a 3D version of Dolly 2, which would just is completely still blowing my mind. So Dolly 2 is just images, but it actually would start to create 3D objects um, through, through text input. That's so awesome. When we talk about casting a wider net and making things available to a cross section of um, an audience, I love that I found out about Dolly 2 from Anthony sending me a TikTok, right? And in the TikTok, uh, Dolly 2 creating art, the person typed in, they wanted um, Danny DeVito is a beanie baby. <laughs> and it was amazing the options that came up. Like, well, like, 
I don't understand with Dolly too. Like, is there a monthly licensing cost? Is it per 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 you know query you put in, or like for example, could somehow you use Dolly two just to make an image for this episode of the Idea Fountain? Yeah. So they do own um, they do own everything you produce. Um, you can use it non commercially. Um, so it's more of kind of internal testing, but the ones that if you follow OpenAI on their Instagram account, which is pretty incredible, they kind of handpick, uh, the coolest ones that people are using. So they kind of own it all. Um, once you get access, you get a few credits a month, you can purchase extra credits, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a per text input, uh, kind of cost model, but it's still extremely new. I don't know how they want to commercialize it themselves. They're backed by multiple billion dollar entities. Elon Musk was one of the first. Um, and there's a few other uh, powerful characters. I think Microsoft might have given them quite a few billion. So it, it's very, it's very, it's very fascinating for sure. That's awesome. Well, I, I really want to thank everybody for joining. I put connectedness right next to consciousness. And we've been so disconnected for the last few years in this pandemic time warp. I actually stopped with my podcast doing fireside chats because people were so over zoomed, right? But this conversation is a million times better having so many different personalities engage in it. I'd love to close out if everybody doesn't mind. I would love if you could make a recommendation, if people wanted to learn more or participate more in the AI field, either something they could follow or join or even just a podcast, maybe you like or, or something if you have it. Um, like one of the things I discovered from going to Will's salon was I got connected to the AI LA Association and built so many deep relationships in that, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, Will, do you maybe want to start? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think that would probably be the the, the first one. They're they're the most. Uh, Todd is a, a, an, an old friend. Um, he he kind of founded the AI LA. Um, it's a it's he's he's grown it uh, quite fantastically. So um, it is of course based in LA, in in Los Angeles, but there's uh, many things online. Um, and then the other, just in, in our kind of small world is, is our own salon that, that we had a couple of weeks ago that was on hiatus for two and a half years for the pandemic. So if anyone's, it's kind of a, a bridge between AI and, and design in our world, but, um, I think AI LA would be a great start. Okay. Logan, any thoughts? Yeah. You know, I, I'm a, obviously a defense guy, so, um, I follow, uh, a lot of what the national labs are doing, what they're what they're putting out research-wise. Uh, DARPA is obviously a big a big organization that's on the cutting edge, and um, so they're they're continuously releasing new projects and different things they're working on, which is which is fascinating. Um, on the on the podcast side, I'm a fan of of Lex Friedman. So if anybody's ever heard of Lex, he's a professor at MIT, uh, but has a pretty strong following. But he um, has a lot of academics on his podcast that um, really go into detail, um, you know, pretty lengthy detail on uh, new and emerging technologies, especially AI and robotics. Awesome. Angela, what'd you get out of that master's degree? Uh, well, I'm a big proponent of understanding the internet and how it works. Um, so my suggestion for people just trying to 
take their first steps into like what's going on here um, would be to go to Google and search for how does Google work and they have a web page that kind of talks to you in really, really plain language about how the search tool works. Um, and I think that understanding how the technology works a little bit underneath the surface will help give, will help develop your own opinions about technology and what's going on. Um, it'll help you just create your own ideas about like what's good, what's bad, if you understand personally how it works. And plenty of companies have so many technology pages that explain their technology to you. Like even simple things like Stitch Fix, they explain their distribution process and how they incorporate data science and AI in it. And um, and Redfin has, redfin.com has their own data center that kind of explains how they create estimates for houses and how much houses cost. Um, and so I think that by by gaining your own understanding about how these things work, um, you'll 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 get a, you'll gain a better opinion about like this conversation as a whole. That just gave me anxiety. It was like all the you know at the end of like signing up for anything in life where there's three pages of legalities that you're like except when I tell you there's <laughs> a funny go search how Redfin works. I just want to have smart friends. <laughs> no. We'll talk more about this later, but they are really fun. And I promise I'll send you some good ones. Anthony, want to close this out? Yeah. Um, wow, everyone's said a lot, but I would have to also second what Angela said is that I do think as technology progresses, one of the biggest things people get concerned by, um, especially let's say like late adopters is there's a fear surrounding new technology that could take over our lives. And I think a lot of that fear stems from, I, I guess a lot of it stems from not understanding the technology maybe, um, and also not fully knowing like what kind of information we're providing that technology. And so um, I do think it is important to understand like how does the AI understand people? And you know, a lot of people are like, oh, like, is it listening to me? Is it doing this, is it doing that? But it's just that, you know, we've become very gullible and like AI has become really good at learning about us. So I do think that is something to always be aware of and to just continue to explore that and like teach ourselves. And I myself am trying to teach myself that too. So, yeah. I think that's great. And it all goes back to the participation, right? Because in just showing up, because when you talk about fear of the unknown, that, you know, is a microcosm of the whole world. How many people are fearful of different cultures or neighborhoods or have a preconceived notion of how something works and it generates that fear or bias. So actually showing up, participating in these conversations really matters. Uh, I want to thank everybody again for coming to our AI theater, the strangest episode of the Idea Fountain I've ever done. And I will leave everybody with uh, that final quote from Blake Lemoyne. Essentially, anything is possible 20 years from now, and it's up to us to decide what it's going to be. <laughs> Have a good day. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Prophet, Corey, Anthony, Angela, Logan, and Will all for being part of my AI theater episode. Uh, and thanks to Blake Lemoyne for answering all of my questions on AI and consciousness. I appreciate you for making it this far in the episode. Every single time you share an episode, leave a review, and of course, 
Get signed up on the Idea Fountain newsletter. It all really makes a difference in making sure we're connected. Thanks so much for listening to the Idea Fountain. I'm Julie Pilot, and I hope you have a great week.